This is the Land Legacy Podcast, brought to you by Whitetail Properties Real Estate. We're your hosts, Adam Keith. And Matt Dye. This is your weekly resource for habitat management, wildlife management, and recreational real estate. We hope you guys enjoy the show. All right, guys. Welcome back. Um, it's been a busy week for us here, uh, Southern Missouri. We've been, uh, covering uh, a lot of different things, um, this spring on the podcast, but most importantly, um, we took an opportunity this week to, uh, to actually do one of our all time favorite management practices, um, that, that we do on, on the woodlands and that's prescribed fire. And before you guys, you know, I see the comments, I see the reviews, um, you know, we try to talk so much about simplifying land management and going into, uh, you know, we, we say cut, burn, repeat. And, uh, you know, I've seen the comments, guys have say, well, <laughs> that's easy to say, you know, uh, cut, burn, repeat. But what if you're in a state or in a place that just doesn't burn or you can't burn? It's not legal to burn. And this podcast is for you guys. Um, but before we start unpacking that, I want to kind of talk about the week and talk about um, some of the stuff we've got going on. One of the biggest things um, that you've hopefully seen, but if you're not following Land and Legacy on social media, we've really tried to up the game in our providing reels and more visual content um, for you guys, not only there, but also on social media, uh, YouTube. Um, we've put a lot of our reels on YouTube as a YouTube short. So I hope you guys are checking that out. If you don't have social media, you can still check out a lot of the reels on YouTube, just searching land and legacy. Um, but this week, I don't know, Chad, uh, as I say that, you know, Chad, Chainsaw Chad's joining me on the podcast this week to help me discuss this. I was really close just to doing it myself. I was like, yeah, whatever. I've done a podcast by myself before and I can do another one. Um, but I was talking to you on the phone and, and you're like, sure, I'll jump on. So here you are. And uh, you did a little burning tonight. I did some burning tonight, some fun burning. I love burning grass. And that's what the majority of what I've burned tonight. Well, all of what I burned tonight was just an overgrown field that needed cleaned up. Yeah. And as a, a buddy of ours who's done a bunch of glade restoration on his place, and now he has done, um, you and Matt helped him burn his glade, which was mainly just cedar tops this time around. Um, but burning his grass as he gets ready to plant it and pass it. Did he mention what he's planting it in? He did not. And some yeah. of it he's not planting. There's, gotcha. Some of it has a pretty decent native grass component to it huh. already. So uh, some of the slope he may leave in native grasses. Yeah. Cool. Um, so we burned, I don't know, 100 to 150 acres probably this week, Chad. What do you think? <laughs> that's what i was guessing i told somebody the other day that i, I thought maybe around 150 acres yeah total yeah it's uh we burned a, a lot of timber um and it and it burned really well um and the turkeys have already found it and the turkeys have already found it that's what i was going to mention is uh 
we burned um, a lot that um, I'm trying to pull up my own X to just go ahead and while I'm talking, go ahead and give a, a better understanding of how much we burned. Um, you know, we, we burned a portion of the woodlands that we've never burned, um, which may come as a shock to some of you, but there was really no good fire line and, um, we just never really got up there, uh, to burn it. And so, uh, we burned a portion. I'll give an example, I think, or a kind of a story for you guys, because, um, I feel like much of this new research that's coming out on the Wild Turkey Science podcast has been, um, they've covered some stuff, a lot of stuff. We, we, we discussed it with those guys over the last two weeks. You've heard us have Marcus Lashley and Will Goolsby on, and we've discussed a lot of stuff. Um, but the most shocking of all the podcasts and all the content they put out has been the um, emphasis on early secession habitat for nesting success and um, and what that basically the percentages of what that looks like for uh, success and predation and uh, just overall uh how much more success is had in early secession versus whatever else was in the test site um and f we covered that and i think chad this comes back to a portion of our farm really turned to no man's land as far as turkey usage um later into the spring, specifically the spot that we burned this year. Um, we chased turkeys there in the spring, but uh, like early in the spring, but as full canopy came out, there was just like no activity back there as far as turkeys. W wouldn't you agree with that? No. Yeah. And that, that's a product of um, the, this is the North bound, like the Northwest boundary of the property. And then the, the neighboring landowner, to the north and west is a patch of closed canopy timber for half a mile or even more than that. I mean, it's a long stretch of closed canopy timber. It's, I mean, close to, it, it's, yeah. it's close to just no open ground whatsoever. We burned about and, 220 acres, by the way. Yeah. And, and, you know, I guess part of that you mentioned it would come as a, as a surprise that we haven't burned that, but you know you th you think about it. Um, a lot of this place, a lot a lot of our stuff, we're still in that beginning stages on a lot of this farm. Um, and in restoration, I like to we we both like to hit hit a new spot. Bring when we bring fire back, do a couple burns really quick, like a pretty quick interval on return of fire on that, like the second burn that we do on stuff. So a lot of the stuff, this one has kind of fallen behind because of the fact that there were others that were more integral of getting that fire going. Um, this one had logging still to be done. It just kind of fell through the gaps. So it was nice to get fire back in there too. 
to where we have completed everything now. It's all seen a fire. No doubt. Yeah. And that's, it's all seen a fire. Some of them have seen multiple fires. You know, we burned portion of this glade just two years ago. So it's, uh, we're, we're almost getting a ch- the biggest parts of our of the farm we purchased on a two-year burn cycle here out of the gate to really try to speed up um, the response. We'll probably get more to a three-year cycle in the future, except for some of the areas we really want to focus on um, remaining open, uh, more, more herbaceous, more uh, disturbed, more frequently. Um, and we'll break that down in future podcasts. Um, before you guys bombard us with questions on why we're choosing that and why um, versus other areas. But ultimately we burned about 220 acres this week and, and uh, two different fires. And, and I want to emphasize too that. I want to emphasize that I'm going to jump in. No, 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 Matt, you're not going to interrupt me this much. Um, uh, <laughs> I say that laughing because Nikki asked me if I was recording. I said, probably by myself. I said, it's going to be weird not to have somebody trying to jump in and interrupt me as I'm halfway through a thought. Um, but I, um, and I'm guilty of that as well. But, um, it, you know, this 220 acres, 200 that, that we burned, it came in two burn units. But don't think that these were squares because I know we emphasize, hey, big burns are better than no burns, but small burns are better than big burns. A lot of this is like almost triangular shaped um, just because we're burning roads and ridges that it's like there's large portions of the fire that a turkey could walk 40 yards and be out of the burn unit. Um you know, the, the, because it's just kind of, I guess star shaped would be better, like four pronged star throwing star shaped. And, and some of these where you don't have to go very far to get out of the burn unit. And some of this being, as we've noticed that um, when it starts greening up here in the next few weeks, that by the time turkeys start nesting, that, you know, we call it brood rearing, but there's portions where it didn't burn real well. And it's like, well, that could be nesting just as easy as brood rearing. So I'm not worried over the fact that we burned 120 acres in one big block because ultimately there's plenty of nesting cover close by or even part of the burn that didn't even, uh, that didn't burn real well. Yeah. And, and that's a benefit to like, you know, a lot of these, a lot of our burn units have diversity in terrain. We have north, south, west east facing slopes the north and east stuff we mainly let it back off so there are areas within those north and east facing slopes that didn't burn so there's refugia areas throughout the burn it's not a line to line solid black burned off all the fuel there's patches everywhere through it throughout the burn that did not burn yeah no doubt Yep. So it was a good week. Uh, we had whitetail properties in camp, um, to help film. And so they shot a pile of videos for the land beat series on YouTube. So follow along on that, um, because they're going to be dropping a lot of that footage in the future, as well as some Turkey stuff that we did while they were in camp. So a lot of content hitting the whitetail properties channel. And so don't miss that. But um, all that to be said, I wanted to talk about some of the my main points in this podcast are for you guys that are in areas that 
and that that you're saying I want to help my property for turkeys because you talk so much about needing disturbance, but also how do I improve my property and diversify it when I can't burn even if it's for deer? Because so many times I see guys um, that are like, man, you guys talk a lot about burning, but I can't burn. And so I wanted to discuss ways to, you, you'll never recreate fire, but you can use other disturbances to provide what we're trying to accomplish with fire. But you'll never recreate what that is doing on the landscape because it's such a magical thing. But, um, you know, in, in certain states, New York being one, it's very hard to burn. PA being another one where they're starting to get to where you can burn, but it's not as easy as like in Missouri. Ohio, even though we have clients all over Ohio, it's one of our top states, it is difficult there to burn. Parts of Kentucky, I guess, or all of Kentucky where you can't burn certain times of the year. And if you do, it's like 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. So you're like really fighting humidity levels. Um, and so uh, I wanted to kind of cover some of these things. First and foremost, if you're in a region that you can't burn um, or it is very difficult to burn, Michigan being another one, first I want to say is just because you hear us talk about it so much doesn't mean it's appropriate for your farm. And and by that I mean if you're trying wanting to burn even if your state allowed it, your farm might not be a place that I would, if you hired me to consult, that I would come there and say, you need to burn. And just because you have timber does not mean it needs to be burned. Just because you feel like you see us do it and it sounds like a great tool does not mean that I would recommend it if I were to consult on your property. So how do you know if your property is not set up for burning? Um, your timber is not set up for burning or not ideal burning conditions. Think of it like this. If you watch an oak, um, if you have an oak hickory forest, um, white oak specifically, historically, those species have adapted to fire. Um, it is a phenomenal way to, you know, if, if the goal is to get more oak regen, you want to improve sunlight and you want to burn. And if even if you watch the way oak leaves fall and dry, they are trying to prepare themselves for fire. They fall, they start to dry and crinkle and roll up on the edges, and this is allowing them to get more air flow and dry out so they can carry fire. A maple leaf, an elm leaf, a cherry leaf, a, a, a beech, that's not doing that. So if you're in Ohio or you're in New York, you're in Michigan and you and uh, an ash tree is another one. Of course, most of the ashes are dead up there uh, in that part of the world. But if you're in a region where your forest is maple and 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 elm or maple and cherry, then you don't necessarily have a forest that's ready to be burned. In fact, you're going to really struggle to get that fire to carry. And not only that, you're in a region. A lot, those, a lot of those leaves deteriorate so fast too that by this time of year, you know, some of the bottom 
bottomland areas that don't have oaks, you go in there and there's very little leaf litter. No doubt. Those, those leaf, those, and if the they, leaves of those trees just deteriorate to nothing. And if they don't break down, they're one of those species that doesn't break down super quick. They're laying flat. And they almost create a paper mache like effect of wet leaves. And so they're just not dried out. They're not getting sunlight. They're not going to burn. Even if you had great conditions, you would not get a burn on them um, and, and to be very beneficial at all. And so I want you to understand that just because we recommend it on our podcast so much doesn't mean that our listeners in Michigan and our listeners in Minnesota. Now, Minnesota has some great borough uh, forests, but you know, there's a lot of forests that are ash and, and maple and beech and um, elm, cherry, uh, all these species that are not really dropping leaves and that, that are ready to be burned. So identify your site index, identify your forest composition, and know whether or not you should burn. Um, now, keep Look in mind... As, research your historic fire intervals. Yeah. There's a lot of, there's a lot of information out there show that as well another thing too is your climate is not necessarily conducive for carrying fire and making fire and burning your forest because much of the northern united states and northeast is going to get snow early in the fall you may have the first snowfall hit in october and you may not see real good cleared ground until may and then as soon as that snow is melting you already have leaves budding out so by the time the bottom of the forest is dry enough or would be dry enough, there's already leaves on the trees. And we talk so much about it's very, it's almost impossible, in my opinion, to burn leaves in closed canopy hardwoods once the canopy is full. It's just there's so much humidity. There's not enough sunlight. It's just not very, it's not going to be a practice. It's going to be great return on your investment. So also keep that in mind. That's why. So there's a very small window of of time that could actually burn, and that's a a big one for 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 a lot of our guys and a lot of our clients. Where I'm like, I you know I don't want to. We don't want to base our management on something that every third year you might get the window to burn, and I don't want you burning the entire place. And if it's maple. And some of these other um, species, I don't. You're not getting a huge benefit. And so, um, also keep in mind one of the biggest negative effects of this is, Chad. What do you think is happening in the northern states? Like, what is one of the most common things you see in northern states um, that that can be well, I'm just going to get to it because I'm, I'm asking you, but I'm just already laying out the road because um, when you go into the northern states, a huge problem that's faced is over, uh, over deer populations. Deer populations are too high, and the biggest stress period is late winter. So we address that by trying to improve the amount of woody browse on the landscape. Well, if we do get woody browse on the landscape through some of these closed canopy forests or through some of these thin forests, I'm not necessarily in favor of trying to rip a fire through there and damage these species that are already struggling because of high deer pressure, high deer numbers, and causing these to uh, 
be browsed back. And so that is another huge problem. Why you don't see me going into the northern states recommending prescribed fire a lot. And so this is me trying to clarify to you guys that I know I talk a lot about it and our content talks about a lot of it. And you see pretty much prescribed fire everywhere you look on a logo of ours or some sort of picture doesn't mean I want you in those states to burn. And I think this can come into effect where some guys in the north are like, you're crazy. Why would you ever burn? Uh, that, that, that's foolish to burn if you're managing a deer. You're burning up all your cover. And you have to understand that our growing season is different. And if we don't burn, we will have more brambles and woody sprouts than we could ever want. And it is not beneficial to the turkeys to have an entire landscape like that. So you got anything or you want to add go, on that, Chad? You go, an, an, you go an hour or two south of us, and if they don't burn, they have a landscape of solid sweet gum. Yeah. Solid sweet gum. Yeah, no doubt. And uh, so, yeah, even parts of the South is difficult. That's why it's important to identify your uh, species and your site index and, and, uh, and, and manage for it because it's much harder. Talking about the back conservation, um, uh, back management that Kyle and Matt did a few podcasts ago, a few weeks ago, is like if you allow this to happen on your landscape – for years and years and years, you bought it, then it's going to get much harder to manage um, in in the way that you want to manage. Um, and so that is kind of the biggest, one of the biggest points of burning timber in some of these states, because most of the states in the South allow burning. Most of the states in the Midwest allow burning. There's some, some guidelines, some uh, things that people don't allow in certain states, like in the Mid-Atlantic, um, but you can still burn. It's just under time restraints um, but if you're in the great lakes region or the northeast and you're like oh you know i'd like to burn you guys talk about it a lot well that doesn't mean i would come to your place and say you need to burn because um, your forest may just not allow it so now how do you create now how do you create the disturbance the sun uh, the, the 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 understory that we want without fire in those hardwoods and that is just as simple as the biggest component is sunlight I, do, I, I recommend more sunlight before i recommend fire so you're going to need to thin out the canopy to get the herbaceous understory that you're hoping for and unfortunately i would always tell people that if you're in a state that can't burn figure out a way to get people educated in the need for burning. If you're in the north northeast, start talking about tick-borne illnesses and how high populations of ticks are causing these tick-borne illnesses. And then use that as a perfect segue to try to change legislation and get people to understand that we need to lower deer populations and we need to burn because that uh, those are kind of a one-two punch that we can help knock back some tick loads on your farm. Um, biggest thing being the deer population is just out of control in many of those places. And because you have a lot of deer, you have a lot of ticks. Um, but burning can also help. So those are big things that you really need to, that's going to have to be changed from a legislation standpoint, from a government policy standpoint. 
Um, so that one's going to be a tougher, a tougher challenge, but it's something that I would encourage all of our listeners that are big conservation minded people to get involved in local government and, um, and, and even state government all the way up the chain, because we need more people like you and I, the listener, um, involved in these policies, because if not, we're going to have cities voting for legislation that affects the rural areas. Take Colorado, for example. Um, whether we're not even starting the wolf debate, but we, we have that everywhere. was a city voting I mean, in. It's... Yeah. City voting in we, um, we have it wolf regulations it's, and rural part of the one of those of the where I think you've got a lag to where it's. I think takes you a do. Bit for it to. Well, anyway, yeah, we're having it everywhere. We're in in all kinds of timber management, everything. It's we need people with wise conservation mind to get involved, not to just let things take over. No doubt. No doubt. I've always joked that one of these days. And I've joked so much and I see so much going on. I'm like, oh, that's probably coming down the pipe to, to be more involved in that sort of thing because it's getting so bad. Um, it's, 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 really, it's really sad how much government has an impact on conservation and it's people that have not a clue about conservation practices and, and the impacts they have on the landscape. But um, that's my little rant, government it, rant for uh, prescribed fire. It also fire. affects our ability to do this um, non-fire disturbance as well. I mean, it, it affects everything. Yeah. So how do you get these herbaceous understories without fire? And it's going to be step number one is thin the canopy. You got to get that back. Step number two is control this unwanted species. And there's really no way around it other than herbicide use. And we're not talking broad spectrum, broad application. We're talking about specifically targeting um these species with uh, whether that be hack and squirt, whether that be basil bark treatment, whether that be foliar treatment on smaller vegetation. Um, but it, it, that's what we're going to have to rely on more in these forests that can't be burned. And they might not even be able to be burned. It may be in a, an area that even if we thin the forest and wanted to burn and could burn because of state regulations, we still couldn't get it to carry. Um, and if that's the case, then we're looking at thinning the timber and controlling with herbicides. So if you're in a state that you can't burn and you thin the forest back and it's a maple forest and you have a bunch of invasives come on or brambles that you don't really want, you're going to have to go in there and use herbicide and try to use that herbicide to kill back those species, those unwanted species, and allow that area to um, grow, grow up in hopefully more beneficial species. Another thing you can do it would be, um, it's a little bit more expensive, but your kind of hands are tied in, in regards to if we're trying to make it happen, then we're going to find ways to make it happen, whether that's with expensive practices or not. But using forestry mulchers to grind up the understory of unwanted species, specifically like um, uh, bush honeysuckle or uh, autumn olive, Grinding that up is going to, and, and thinning out that mid-story, while you're doing it, there's going to be a disturbance of the soil with the tracks, with the grinder head, that that's going to cause seeds to uh, reach the surface and, and, and germinate and begin to grow. So 
I don't always recommend using forestry mulchers, but that is kind of a side effect of using those in the, in the hardwoods is um, those tracks are going to disturb the soil almost as in a old field management type disturbance to stimulate the seed bed. So that is uh, another, another big thing. Um, next up is field management without fire. Um, I want to talk about old field management and I want to differentiate that between prairie management because prairie remnants are crucial in needing a fire disturbance but but if the state doesn't allow the burning then it's really hard to manage a true prairie without fire just from the standpoint of it has if the state doesn't allow you to to manage the a remnant prairie with fire you should spend every other day at the legislature throwing a fit. Yeah. Yeah. If you have, if you're in an area that has prairie remnants and you aren't allowed to burn, then somebody's missed the mark on appropriate managing because prairies burned and that's it. That's just final. If you're trying to manage these areas though, um, try to keep the mind in, old field management. And I'm talking about, I, I, I just disregard the, the, the prairies because ultimately if you have a prairie and you're in a state that can't burn, your only option is to graze it to replicate natural disturbance. So flash graze it in the summer or graze it during the summer a few times and get it out of there because that would be a way to stimulate new seed beds uh, or stimulate forb um, diversity in, in, in that prairie. Um, but now stepping over into old field management, which is more what we see in the in the um, the states that you can't burn. Old field management is going to be herbicide removing thatch loads. That's a big thing. If you're wanting brood rearing cover in a state that can't be burned, you've got to remove thatch loads some way somehow. And you may, if it's not a prairie remnant, then you need to rely more on grazing. But ultimately, probably more um, more uh, used for disturbance will be disking mowing disking herbicide application and grazing that's how we're going to manage our old fields without fire so get in there we need some bare ground so lightly disking during the dormant season if the thatch is too thick identify the thatch first if it's a cool season grass we need to spray it and get it killed and then we need to lightly disk it because we need that bare ground we need the ability for turkeys to be able to walk underneath these umbrella plants and not be stumbling through heavy thatch loads. And that is the one of the biggest complaints I'll have in these states that don't allow fire and you're trying to manage for brood rearing habitat is like how it is very difficult. Your hands are very tied. So keep in mind, you're going to need to disc. You're going to need to graze if possible. If you have enough acres, I would strongly encourage you to graze during the summer months in a rotation effect where you're not just completely scalping all the vegetation, but you're leaving vegetation for cover, but you're creating a disturbance that attracts insects, but still gives the turkeys the ability to move through and have some cover. Anything you want to add on that, Chad? No, I mean, you know, I think a lot of people shy away from grazing because we've went for heard it for years of, you know, wildlife and cows don't mix. And 
you see or or they don't have the fencing that's another one you hear a lot well i don't i don't have fences around my place it's i i can't have cows well you know with the technology we have today with electric fences and everything else there's always somebody looking for a place to graze their cows at some point like you if you if you search hard enough you'll find somebody that needs a few more acres, another 10 acre patch of grass that they could graze their cows on for say a month. And Maybe even just a bullock. Perfect. Yes. I mean, anything that there's, if you, if you search hard enough, you can find somebody that if, if you have that, you can, you can set it up to where the, you work together really well. It's not one of those you you just get the first person and say, oh yeah, and they they take it over and they graze it into the dirt and you're in just as bad a shape as you were, but you can find the right person to make your place great and not no cost you a bunch of diesel fuel and equipment maintenance. If they're a good cattle manager, they should be like they'll put the electric fence in for free, and maybe even depending on the acres you have, yeah, pay you a little saying. bit. I mean, yeah. All of those things can be, it's, I mean, they may have an upfront cost on, on the electric fencing and all of that. And you give them the grazing that year for free or something. You can yeah. work out, you can, to, quote, to quote TK and Mike, America was, was founded on the bartering system. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. Um, boy, that's it. You pulled out a gem there. Um, and I think to, to me... <laughs> The early secession is clearly the missing piece in turkey production. A lot of the Great Lakes states, they don't even understand turkey problems, turkey decline, because they're still in this building up population phase where there's just turkeys everywhere in a lot of those states like Minnesota and Wisconsin. They're just filthy with turkeys. But they still have, in my experience, a lot of early secession. Um a lot of old fields, um, you know, I've worked in those states and, and they have it much more than a lot of the states, especially in the southeast. And and so if you have them or you don't, I guess let's say you don't have them, find a way to make them. And uh, if you if you do have them, make sure you keep them managed to the to the T if you, if you can. And using if you can burn in some of these states in the in the Great Lakes, great. Burn them. Try to burn a portion of it every year. But if you're in a state that you can't burn, then look into grazing it if you have enough acres. Look into lightly disking it um, in the dormant season, trying to stimulate bare ground. And um, if you have to, use herbicide. So um, another way that, like, areas that I'm like, ugh, you know, for us, typically burning prairies, burning old fields, and burning woodlots is is a huge one. Um, I wanted to address another feature that that I get asked a lot, and I haven't done a podcast, so my apologies on it. But riparian areas, um, you know, uh, what is it? Minnesota is the land of a thousand lakes, or something like that. I forget the phrase. They're gonna they're gonna uh, um, 
go get after me because I forgot what it is, but I think it's like or land of ten thousand lakes. Maybe it's yeah, land of ten thousand lakes, something like that. I think it's ten thousand. Ten thousand, because a thousand lakes doesn't sound like a lot, but maybe it's a land of a million lakes. Let's just say that. But I'm pretty sure it's ten thousand. Um, most of those are swamps, um, but in boggy type areas. But if you if you've been in those states, you realize that there's a lot of kind of lowland riparian areas that are forested and you think well there you know Lane Lacey talks a lot about fire I don't even try to recommend burning in a lot of the riparian areas in Missouri because you can get into more cherry more elm more cottonwood more species that don't necessarily love fire or the leaves don't really carry a fire you get into a lot more cool season native grasses like Virginia wild rye, Canada wild rye, any of our native ryes, river oats being another one. Like it's really hard to burn those. And yeah. so well, you, you, you don't, don't even think that you should burn them. Even if you have, even if you're in a state that you could burn like Missouri, where it's just like, I feel like burning today, call up the local dispatch, call my neighbor and say, Hey guys, I'm burning today. S- hold off on sending the cavalry because this one is controlled. If I call you, then it's not controlled. Bring the cavalry on, broken arrow. And uh, then, you know, ultimately it's like, that's, that's when you know, Missouri's so wonderful. But even if, even if we had 100 acres of riparian, I bet you we wouldn't even burn it that much, if ever. Because you just well, can't do here's, it. Here's another thought. Here's another thought on riparian stuff. If you have decent nesting cover, decent areas that they could nest outside of those riparian areas, I have seen some great looking brooding areas in riparian areas in Kansas in late May, turkey hunting, because of flooding. Yeah, because great point. The lake's backed up it got rid of all of the duff and then it was just bare ground all through the bottom ground Yeah, to where if you had areas where they would nest outside of that riparian area, it's dynamite down there in the riparian zones for brooding. And you think about like a way a lot of our natural lakes are, they're long, skinny, narrow drainage ways, especially when you look at backwater flooding it's not like filling out a humongous valley. They're backing up into these little crevices, these these little drainage ways, these ditches, to where it may only be 60 yards across. So there's nesting, most likely, more. The, the landscape is naturally going to be more conducive for nesting than it's going to be for brood rearing, um, just from the standpoint of most landscapes are thicker than they are bare ground with the nice beneficial forbs close by well, and here's another thought you think of historically what what some of those riparian areas would have had you would have had a lot of i mean this is complete complete theory theory on this but there would have been beaver dams everywhere yep we also get most i mean spring rains we get big flooding rains that would blow out those beaver dams. What would those areas be at a perfect time after those beaver dams were blown out? 
brood rearing. They would be bare ground. Yeah. Like for that period of time in between, there would be more bare ground and then like a lot of plants growing in response to dry areas then. Yeah. So, and bare, bare ground doesn't I mean, last very long. That's mm-hmm. the that's the thing. Like when we say you need bare ground, understand that the bare ground, the best bare ground, the best brood rearing habitat we can create on our farm and our clients' farms is going to look great in early spring. But by late summer, there there'll still be some bare ground, but it'll be under plants because yeah. most of the time the plants and, are going to grow up through the growing season. Like we're by that, by that time you would account on at least turkey poults being big enough that it's not as big of a deal having completely bare ground. No doubt. They're, they're able to start moving and being mobile. Quail is a little different. And I think that's why Kyle and Frank have really keyed on keyed in on grazing and the benefits for quail, but that's really, you know, and we've seen that just with turkeys on our own farm that the, the, the turkeys might as well be little, prairie chickens behind the behind the cattle because they just follow the herd um but getting back to the riparian areas like it's very hard to burn them even naturally occurring um untouched riparian areas that's just going to be very hard to do and in a lot of the northeast and a lot of the great lakes region has a lot of what would be floodway or waterway forest and it just wouldn't burn that well anyway so I, I, uh, the point of this message, the point of this podcast is for you guys to understand that um, just because we preach it a lot about using prescribed fire doesn't mean it's the right thing for your farm. And you're going to have to find ways to create, if you're focused on turkeys, which I hope you are, that you're going to have to find ways to create brood rearing habitat without fire. And it really comes down to grazing disking i almost cringe but maybe mowing in certain instances herbicide at the right time of the year at the right time of the year for sure not during nesting season <laughs> um you know as the research shows that 12% of the in in that Tennessee research that 12% of the nests were destroyed from mowing is like ah, that was an easy fix just don't do it during that time of the year um and so, you know, I don't know. That's all I really wanted to have discussed today. Chad, you got any closing thoughts? Not really. Maybe yeah. maybe we'll end up after this, after after the thoughts on riparian stuff, we may end up with people uh, putting in the fake beaver dams to, to, to flood areas to then rip them out right, right about nesting time so that they have bare ground. No doubt. Maybe so. Maybe so. Um, you know, and I think this is just another emphasis on the future of the woodlands. Like we're going to open the place up so you guys can see more of the farm in the future. It's not conducive for a workshop like we're planning in the in the future, but um, you know, we're working on getting it set up to where individuals and small groups can come and see the farm. Um, so if you guys are thinking interested in that, shoot me an email, Adam at LandlandLegacy.tv because. I'd love to show you guys the woodlands. Um, we haven't really opened it up much at all. Um, we kind of had to put the kibosh on the hunts for a bit because of the TV show that we had no intentions of playing and doing until midsummer last year. But, um, oh, one thing else, too, I wanted to mention was the element guys. 
um, Element Wild on YouTube. They dropped a video that they shot with us last spring. Really cool video. So I encourage you to go check that out. Search Element Wild on YouTube and look at a couple of videos back and you'll see a turkey hunt in Missouri um, that was with Chad and I. And I think Matt was there on some of the videos. So anyway, um, guys, we appreciate it. We'll catch you next week. Yeah.